Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, July 20th, 2016. This is episode 1831 of the Survival Podcast. And today is an interview day because Wednesdays are interview days. And this time we are welcoming back a young man named Nick Hazelton. Nick is 17 years old. He was on before. I may jog your memory if I tell you that he is a yak farmer, 17-year-old yak farmer. Nick is going to come on and talk to us today about getting out of government schools to produce self-directed education or home-based education. We're going to talk about why he decided to get out of school, what drove him to do so, why he started a business and got into agriculture, some successes that he's had, how he thinks schooling affects children and their families, and why he thinks self-directed or home-based education affects families for the better. We're going to be talking about all that more with a really switched-on young guy. Think about the fact this kid's 17 years old. He's making his second appearance on the Survival Podcast, speaking to 150,000 people. Not bad, eh? Anyway, we'll have him on in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value-for-value value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's tspbiz.com to learn more. One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1831. And uh, therefore, we're going to look at the year 1831. Alex Shrugged has three for us today and other news as well. Uh, we have America Let Freedom Ring. Samuel Smith writes, My Country Tis of the This Year. I'm not going to read that, so I wanted to give you kind of the skinny on it. Klauswitz on War. And uh, that is an interesting one. And Nat Turner's Slave Rebellion and Loving Your Enemies. I'm going to read that one. But first, in other news, Charles Darwin sets out on the HMS Beagle as a naturalist. As upon his return, he will put his notes in order and realize natural selection explains the difference he sees species to species. Victor Hugo publishes novel The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and the inventor of Coca-Cola is born. After John Pemberton becomes addicted to morphine, he cures it with a mixture of cocaine and alcohol. Later, he comes up with a non-alcoholic version but with the with carbonation, but the cocaine stayed until 1903. Um, I can't remember the guy's name. I, I can't remember who it is, but the guy that invented the hypodermic needle, his wife became either the first opium or morphine addict. I think it was a morphine addict. Uh, we will probably get to that at some point here. Anyway, um, let's take a look at Nat Turner's Slave Rebellion and Loving Your Enemies. Nat Turner is a slave, and he's going to meet his maker. Nat is not a wicked man. He believes in the Lord and preaches the gospel. A few years ago, he was visited by the Holy Spirit and told he was to bear, bear the sins of man, just as his Savior had done, and that Nat was to fight against the serpent, meaning white slave owners. Then in February of this year, a total eclipse was taken as a sign that his preparations for rebellion should begin. He collected his weapons and brought some fellow slaves into his plan. 
Then on that August day, the sun took on a strange color. It was a sign, Nat thought. They began their work killing the slave owners, leaving aside only those homes where humble white people lived. He freed hundreds of slaves and killed around 75 white men and women and children before the militia put them down. Fifty-six slaves were hanged, including Nat Turner, who expressed no regrets. Maybe a hundred or more were killed during the fighting. It is the worst slave rebellion in U.S. history. The consequences for the future are incalculable. In the weeks that follow, hundreds more slaves are killed by mobs. The slave owners are riding the tiger, and there's no way off. My take, by Alex Shrugged, during the civil rights protests of the 1960s, the Reverend Martin Luther King emphasized the importance of passive resistance. His niece, Dr. Aveda King, participated in a passive protest as a young girl, but she stepped out of line and was arrested. She had broken her pledge, so they left her in jail. Though the offense was small, discipline had to be maintained. The kings were holding the reins of a riot. If they let go, they could lose it all. Many of King's supporters wanted revenge, but he knew that calmer heads must prevail. I'm wondering when that time will come. Quote, don't get panicky. Don't do anything panicky. Don't get your weapons. If you have weapons, take them home. He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. Remember, that is what Jesus said. We are not advocating violence. We want to love our enemies. I want you to love our enemies. Be good to them. This is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. Reverend Martin Luther King during the bus boycott after Rosa Parks was denied a seat on the bus. All right, I have a couple things to think about on this. Number one, you, you hear the story of this guy, Nat Turner, who goes out and kills a bunch of white men and, and women and children. And the women and children I, I, I kind of have a problem with, but would it be wrong if you were enslaved for you to kill the people that were actually physically holding you as a slave in order to escape. And I think most of us would say no. And I think if you wouldn't say no, then you really have to do some internal self-examination. What if I came to your house and said I was kidnapping you and I was going to take you to a place to make you stay there and work for me? And you had a gun. And you thought that without using that gun to kill me, that uh, that I would be able to make good on my threat. Would you shoot me? And if you wouldn't, you're stupid. Okay. What if I'd already done that and I was keeping you in a place and making you a slave and said, you will work my fields, you will do whatever I want, uh, I own your ass and I'll sell you, and you got an opportunity to kill me and get away, would you do it? And if you wouldn't, again, you're probably stupid. But, do I think it makes sense for civil rights activists today, or in the 1960s, to go around killing Whitey? No. So, what we have there is an interesting concept. You can say whatever you want about today. I think that... Racism today is nothing like it was in the 80s, let alone the 60s. And I lived through the 70s and the 80s, so I, I know the progress that's been made. But in the 1960s, racism was a real problem. But I don't think killing anybody was a valid solution or warranted over it. So I definitely don't think it's worth it today. But I'm going to tell you right now, the only reason there weren't more of these slave riots is the slaves didn't think they could get away with it. And... You're completely justified in killing somebody holding you captive against your will, especially if you've committed no crime, except being in a place where somebody decided they owned you. So then the question becomes, where does the right to use lethal force in your own defense stop? It's not clearly just an aggression thing. So aggression should only be countered with equal levels of aggression, in my personal opinion. It's actually a very Russian philosophy. If you punch me, I will move out of the way and possibly punch you back. 
but I'm not going to pull out a knife and stab you, and I'm not going to put you in a chokehold and choke you out and kill you. I'm going to stop the aggression. That's passive resistance. Because Alex wrote his take on Closets on War, and he speaks of his father, and you might want to read the whole segment for yourself, Become a Pacifist After the Korean War. And uh, Alex respected his father's belief in pacifism, but was not influenced by his father to hate the gun and, and to not be willing to have a gun. And he says, I know my duty and I know that evil exists and that gun might be necessary. I think one can be a pacifist and a fan of the gun at the same time. That's how I see myself. I will do everything in my power to de-escalate a conflict, but at the point that I feel that my life or my freedom is threatened, well, then I will use all force necessary up to the point of lethal force to protect my freedom or my life. I think that makes a lot of sense, a tremendous amount of sense. And I just wonder, I just wonder where we lost our senses that that is what made sense. Keep that in mind when we get to today's closing song. It'll kind of come back around. With that, I'm uh, excited right now to introduce our special guest today, Nick Hazelton. Hey, Nick, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me back on, Jack. Man, I'm glad to have you back on. I was really impressed with you last time, and uh, I know it's been uh, been over a year, I think, since you've been on the show. I think so. I think so. I think it was like the early spring of last year. So, yeah, like a year and a few months. So I guess some things have happened. Can you kind of tell people about who you are, what you're doing running around with these crazy yaks, and just kind of how you got <laughs> to, to the point you're at in life right now? Sure. I uh, When I was young, I'm, I'm 17 now, um, but I, I got started – Getting interested in, in politics and then eventually farming when I was younger, probably about 12, um, I got interested in politics. And about 14, I decided I wanted to get into agriculture and raising animals since uh, I had done 4-H, and I, th I thought that would be fun. So I got into that, and uh, probably about two years ago, um, yeah, it was last April uh, or two Aprils ago, I uh, started uh, purchasing some yaks, got into the business, and uh, now I've got a herd of about – 18, um, probably 12 of them are mine, and the rest are uh, herd partners. And uh, we're I'm running this business called uh, Hazelton Farms with my father. We raise some yaks, hogs, and uh, some dairy goats. And uh, I got out of school around the same – I guess it was a couple – it was a year after I started the farm. Um, I got out of high school. I, I rose out of high school. So I'm right now I'm, I'm kind of self-educating myself running this business with the Yaks and uh, doing a little bit of um, podcasting and radio. Very cool, man. And um, you, you say you got out of school, so you, you didn't graduate. You had made, last time I had you on, you made this deal with your parents. The, you, could, you could drop out if you'd been able to build a house, basically. Is, is that how you got out? And if not, why'd you get out? And how'd you, how'd you finagle it so you could? Yeah, I actually <laughs> I got a better deal than that. I have not built my own house yet. Um, but uh, I made a deal... That, uh, if I could create a self-education plan that, uh, they would let me get out of school and do my own thing. So I, I made a plan and, uh, it took him a while. <laughs> it took a, a while to convince him that this was the best path for me, but, um, eventually I convinced him with that, that plan. I kind of have, uh, the ideas of what I'm supposed to be doing while I'm out of school, which is running the business and, and, you know, researching a few things and learning how to, to be an adult kind of. So what, you, what, what are you doing, was. like your your last year then, basically? Because you were 
I think only two years away anyway. Yeah, so I uh, I think that would have been sophomore year when I last talked to you. Okay, yeah, and uh, I, yeah, I did. I finished up that year, and then I didn't come back. Awesome man, <laughs> flight to power. What what drove you to do that? I mean, you had this deal, and you you went and made another deal, and I like that already, right? We can make deals, we can get somewhere in life. Uh, especially if we can make deals with our parents. It's easier to make deals with a lot of people than your parents because your parents always feel they know better than you because that's mm-hmm. makes some parents. But what made you uh, dr- driven to do this? Yeah, I, I had a lot of uh, – I mean, I'm, I don't mean to brag, but I, I succeeded pretty well in school um, up until I was probably in my sophomore year, and that's when I kind of decided to give up. But uh, I, I was just going through rough times when I was in school, and I realized I, I it was not helping me at all. It was a lot of stress. I was going to a – pretty difficult charter school a lot of ap classes and the stress was weighing on me and then i kind of decided that you know i wasn't happy and uh, the only reason i stayed is because i was kind of afraid that i wouldn't be able to to succeed in life without a college degree and then uh, i started listening to some people (laughs) oh i think maybe i started listening to you a little bit started getting interested in agriculture and uh then i started listening to school sucks project and uh, i started realizing okay maybe i don't need this and uh, I, I realized, okay, I'm not happy here. I actually don't need this to succeed on this path that I'm thinking. I'm going to get into agriculture. And then uh, I got the yaks, and I'm like, okay, like I don't need this anymore. And so I started pushing my parents, like, let me get out of here. So that was kind of the thing to do, I thought. Very cool. And how's that worked out for you? So far, it's been great. It's, I guess uh, this would have been... It's coming up on a year since I got out. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was out on the summer, so it's been a year since I've been out of school. And it's definitely been fantastic, right? I would. Uh, this is probably the best decision I think I've made yet is to get out of school. I have a lot more freedom and uh, a lot less stress. There's still a little bit of stress because I'm running a farm, but um, it's definitely better. So, I mean, just so people understand, you're not sitting around every day playing video games for your education. You you have you've set up a self-directed education path. And can you maybe talk a little bit about what that's like? Yeah, absolutely. So, I, yeah, no, I don't play a whole lot of video games. I uh, have to do quite a bit of work. And, and since I'm I'm running a podcast, I have to research stuff and I have to be on top of things. And I also just enjoy learning. Right, I listen to a lot of podcasts myself, so I listen, I, I soak in a lot of information. But no, I, I'm not, I'm not being lazy. Though some people, you know, would make fun of me just because I dropped out of school, right? They think that's what I'm doing. But uh, I'm running a business, so I have to keep up on things like marketing. I have to learn how to do that, which is has been probably the most interesting uh, thing I've been working on. But learning how to how to make a successful business has been the main thing. And the the plan was that I would be doing that. I would learn how to run a business, make it profitable, and then also learn um, kind of the things you have to do to run a farm, which is totally separate from running a business. It's a, it's a whole nother level, right? You have to know how to manage your pastures. Um, you have to know quite a bit about biology, I think, and, and behavior um, behavioral biology with animals. So I study some of that stuff. Studying uh, I, for a little while, I studied some genetics, right, to to learn this stuff. But all of it kind of fit in with my, my dad wanted me to be learning some of these topics like science and math. Of course, I haven't done a whole lot of work on math, but um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to I have to calculate some things, um, especially when you're running prices, right? 
Well, but, so that was kind farming of farming is is science and math, and then business is a lot of math. It's yes. a different application of math. Like X actually means something in 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 business. It's not an arbitrary X, right? It's it's like profit or loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was the idea. Is that that's that's what my parents wanted to see, and that's that's why I laid out in this self-directed learning thing. And then there were also stuff like I got to keep up with certain household chores. I got to be um, a productive member of the household, you know. So there were things like that in that plan to make sure that I wasn't just going to slack off and, and do whatever I wanted. Cool. Um, and you decided to start a business. What what drove you to start a business in the first place? Yeah, I I, I value freedom. <laughs> so I, I really wanted to have control of my time. That's kind of the main thing that pushed me. So I wanted to be able to um, not I, I don't want to work for anybody else because I've, I've, I've had a few short term jobs and just kind of working for random people sometimes. And that's all right. And you know, I can make money and doing it. It's, it's kind, of, kind of fun. You can learn stuff from certain kind of jobs. But I didn't really like that. I didn't control my schedule. You know, I had to get up um, a little bit earlier than I wanted to. And so I decided, well, um, let me do my own thing. And uh, that way I'll be able to control it and uh, I don't really have to rely on, on other people as much for my income and, and uh, the, my success in general. Well, above all things, why, why agriculture? There's a, there's a lot of people out there making good livings today. And if you like lined up all the different things you could do, agriculture is probably not in the top ten for making <laughs> money, right? I mean there's a lot of farmers living hand to mouth. And there's a lot of farmers doing well. So I don't want to totally poo-poo it. I'm, it's something we do here ourselves with our with our ducks, um, but it's it's not the easiest route to a buck. What what drove you in that direction? Sure. I, I uh, when I was thinking about what I was going to do with my life when I was in high school, um, thinking about ways that I could get out of school. I I, um, I was raising animals through 4-H, and I that was one of the things I really enjoyed. I didn't enjoy school, so I kind of looking at all the things I was doing and looking at the stuff I enjoyed, that was a big thing I liked. So I thought this is a good area that I could go in. And I was worried about the money, um, but I, I decided I don't really need to make a whole lot of money. And then I came up with the axe and I thought, ooh, maybe I could make some decent money here because that's something unique. And uh, at where I live here in Oregon, little niche markets for food, people love people love weird things. So I thought, okay, maybe I can make some money here. And, and then I also, the big thing was food independence. I liked the idea of, of being dependent on myself as, as much as possible. So I, I wanted to be able to be living off, um, on my own as much as, as I can, as much as comfortable as, right? Cause it's not always, uh, super fun to be off grid, but I decided that that's kind of the path I wanted to go in be independent, grow off uh, this land that my family had that hadn't really been used much. And uh, I just saw a lot of opportunities and uh, I, I decided, you know, I don't need to make a whole lot of money anyway. And this is kind of just the way I want to live, kind of this simple. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why I like agriculture, but I think the main one is is the independence factor. So you're, you're, you're getting into what I call like a lifestyle business. And it's, it's kind mm-hmm. of what I have, like the business enables the lifestyle. So as long as I can save some pennies for a rainy day, live the lifestyle I want, then the money's sufficient, and I don't have to chase the buck. I can actually fulfill the lifestyle. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I'm shooting for. So can you tell us about you know how's it working out? Have you had some success with what you're doing? I'm. I recently things have been getting. Uh, you know, I bring 
bringing in more revenue. I uh, was surprised by how fast I could sell yak at a farmer's market. I sold probably, I, I think I came to the market with 100 pounds or something. I sold it in two two weeks. So one Saturday, I sold most of it, and then I sold uh, probably 20% of the meat I had on the next Saturday. So I, I was surprised that I could I could sell that. And so I'm, I'm looking at a, <laughs> some success there, and I've been able to sell my hogs um, and make a little bit of money. It's nothing to live off of yet, but uh, you know the whole farm is is starting to make money. We've got selling herd shares through the goats, so it's we're seeing a little bit of revenue come in. But um, I'd like to amp that up in the next few years. Yeah, I think the the yaks can definitely be a, a really good source of revenue, and, and now you have some baseline numbers to work off of and some realistic expectation to turnover. I my, when I don't know if you remember when I interviewed last time and you said guinea hogs, I went ugh. While you were talking, right? And the reason I did that is that there's there's nothing wrong with a guinea hawk. They're 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 a fine pig, and the meat is some of the best meat you will ever eat in your life. But they take so long to finish out that what we found in West Virginia was it was difficult to raise them for a profit. So I think you you have to for that particular animal you have to really zero in on some sort of a specific niche to to generate enough revenue per pound. Or you have to figure out a way to, to raise them like dirt cheap, because that's that's my issue with them. Whereas you know you can get a, a standard piglet of even heritage breeds and put them on the ground for six seven months and they're ready to go graduate with a twenty two in the head. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was why I said that. But the yak, like, there's no such thing as a place where you're selling yak that's not a niche market, right? That it is mm-hmm. its own niche, and I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And you're right, the state you're in is kind of, especially in the area, and it's kind of a foodie area. And, and I think that more farmers could take a lesson from you because you can grow all the tomatoes you want, but I can go to the, to the store and get tomatoes. I can go down to Whole Foods or Central Market and get beautiful heirloom, you know, organic tomatoes. Finding yak is kind of difficult. I looked it up online, and, man, you want to pay through the nose. That's that's a, it's an expensive, uh, expensive piece of ribeye if you buy rack, uh, yak mm-hmm. I'm sorry, on, online. So I think you've got something there if you can capitalize on it. It's a matter of how much land, how much time, you know, what does it take to run a herd. And to tell you the truth, you know, you know a hell of a lot more than I do about that right now. And I guess there's a lesson there, too, because I remember the other thing that you said last time you were on. I'm like, well, what, you know, how this all started? You're like, well, I decided I want to do yak, so I, like, went out and found some yaks and bought them. And yeah. that, that attitude is incredibly valuable, right? And I think you can afford to be that way when you're 16, 17 years old. Right. Yeah, that's why I wanted to take the chance. I figured I, I got to let's, let's start the business while I can, um, while I can live off my parents, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then any profit is, is a good thing. And then you have this ability now to say, okay, X equals Y, right? Actual practical algebra. So if I do this, then this is my gross revenue minus my expenses equals profit. So now I can scale that straight up and say this is what it takes to be as profitable as I need to be. And then you could sanity check that and go, okay, it works but not enough. And I, then you got to figure out what peripherals to bring in or it works just fine or it might work. But you have a, a, a statistical reality where if you, if you do what you're asked to do, wait until you're 18 and on your own to do this, then you're starting out of the gate with no safety net whatsoever. And, man, I mean, I don't want to – pay for my kid when he's 26, 27 years old, like he's fixing to be, but, you know, providing a safety net for an entrepreneur, I mean, that's, that should be every parent's dream. Instead, we're trying to cog people into a, a system that's becoming outdated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's something that I've been kind of disappointed with to see, um, 
you know, with, you know, when I'm painted as a millennial and then people hear I'm high school dropout, right? Uh, <laughs> that doesn't, a lot of people, uh, don't think of me, uh, when they first hear uh, of what I'm doing as that exciting. Then they hear about the yaks. Oh, that's kind of cool. And then, um, but yeah, it's, it's disappointing to, to see a bad rap for, um, a lot of millennials, but that the fact is, is we're not that successful as a whole. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad to be, uh, at least try to be a, a shining example of, of. And as for the dropout now. thing, I can't remember his last name. Ben something I had on the show. He's one of Chelsea Green's authors, a book author I had on, uh, that's homeschooling his kids. And he dropped out of school when he was like 15 and, and did the self-directed learning thing. And when I kind of pointed that to him, I said, you know, what about this, you know, quitting thing? You know, don't we always hear never quit? And he said, I am perfectly okay with quitting things that are making me miserable and not helping me. And I think that there's a lot of young people that that's how they feel about school. It's not only making them miserable, it's not actually helping them. And, I mean, I, every person that is an adult that tells me that we need to force kids through this, you know, structured system, what I want to do is I want to sit them down with, like, two or three final exams from, like, 12th grade and say, pass that shit, right? Mm -hmm. And when they can't, I'm going to say, now look me straight in the eye and tell me you need to know this. To do. And some of them would be engineers, and they wouldn't be able to pass their, you know, their 12th grade science class because it wasn't engineering science. It was, you know, whatever. They wouldn't be able to pass history or whatever. So it's not that we all need everything. I do think there's a place for being rounded in your education and general knowledge, but this formulaic approach seems to be doing more harm than good to me, especially right now. Like, this is not, you know, 1950 anymore. It's not like everybody just goes out and gets a job because they want one. Yeah, absolutely. You, you really got to fight <laughs> to get some done. And then when you have to start out late and then you have no real skills, right? You have to start at 18 or even later because you have to go to college, right? Yeah. And then you really don't have uh, the skills it takes to to actually get Start start being successful. Like you can get a job probably, and you can probably do all right at that job. But then you're not really prepared otherwise, right? You you have to go out of your way away from the school system to learn to actually get real life skills. Like you're not really taught um, how to plan your life in school. You might get some budgeting classes here and there, but you really have to go out of your way, go to to other places, like maybe your parents or online to really figure out how to do some of this stuff right to actually be successful in life you do and you do have to go out of the school and then when you're in school you don't you don't really get that great information so i think it's just really in the way yeah yeah definitely you know what i like is you have some street cred here because you're still in that age bracket plus your first 10 years you went to school and did very well in a kind of a, a you're lucky even to be in the type of school you're in kind of a really advanced charter school and then still saying okay this doesn't work so to me i guess what i'm saying is if that, that doesn't work for you then how can we expect that the average especially like inner city uh underfunded or just poorly run school is going to work for the average person it doesn't make any sense to me that we would expect that that would work anymore right yeah, and, and it doesn't, right? If you look at the, if you look at the, the dropout rate in, in those inner city schools, it's pretty high. So people are getting out. And unfortunately, they're not, they're not always, um, starting businesses and, and being productive, right? But, uh, people are getting out because they do see that 
it's not not helpful to them. Well, Dallas County here has a 40% failure of kids that enter to exit through graduation, 40% failure. And you want to talk about a non-reality. I don't know any other job other than maybe a politician where you could fail 40% of your job and keep your job and then ask for a raise and get one. I, I, I have never heard of that. Like when I was just a kid stocking shelves in a, a grocery store, right? Pretty basic. Like, like it's the most basic job you can have. If I had failed to stock the shelves 40% of the time, I would have got fired, right? I certainly wouldn't have gotten a raise. And I can't think of a doctor failed to like keep his patient alive 40% of the time or, you know, uh, any job you can think of. If a farmer failed to grow 40% of his crop in any reality-based system, 40% failure is complete failure. You're done. You're not continuing. Only in a government propped up system with it, it, like this, this false marketing error is necessary. Could we ever have 40% failure and say all teachers are heroes and they deserve more money? Mm-hmm. I mean, and you can say what you want about the kids, but man, you know, when I was in the military, if I got guys put in my squad, I worked with what I had and you were expected to succeed. I mean, that's, that's as blunt as I can be about that. So how do you feel like modern schooling is affecting kids and their families in those relationships? I, I do think that it's pretty damaging. Um, when you have to spend up to seven hours a day just sitting in a classroom being talked at, I don't think that that's healthy. And I don't think that it's it's enjoyable at all. And you can ask anybody. Like, There's, there's probably 1% of students that actually enjoy going to school and most of the time, anything anybody enjoys about going to school is seeing their friends, right? So it's not something that they're looking forward to, especially sitting in the classroom. And then you're, you're separate away from your family for that long of a time. And, uh, while that seems kind of natural what we have today, I don't think that that's, uh, the way human beings have been living for, you know, that's, that's only been maybe a hundred years. And most of the time, like, I don't know when this kind of school system really started, but I think it was the early 1920s, right? So I don't think that it's very natural. And I don't think that it benefits uh, familial relationships. Is that, that a word, familial? Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. good. How would you know? You're a high school dropout. <laughs> That's exactly right. I don't know my vocabulary. What are you using big words like that for? <laughs> I mean, it really did all start in, in, in Prussia before it was officially known as Germany in the, the early to mid 1800s. And I can't think of the guy's name, but one of our guys, you know, went over there is considered the father of modern, modern education. His name just won't come to me right now. Went over in like the, the mid 1800s and he came back and it was his goal to get that implemented here in the United States. But it really didn't get done that way. You're right until the early 1900s. It took that long to fully indoctrinate people. Because, you know, at the time, most people in this country were agriculturally based. They were small towns and school was, there was school, but it was different because basically you'd have, you know, it looked like a modern classroom, sort of, no computers, but it'd be rows of kids. But there were so few kids to a school that it'd be like, you know, 12th grade was in the front or probably first grade was in the front and 12th was in the back. And the students were actually teaching other students. So you'd give the third grader an assignment, tell the fourth grader to help them with it. And then the fourth grader's assignment would be helped with by the fifth grader. So students were both learning and teaching. And you've probably had enough experience to know now, when you teach something, you're like 10 times more likely to remember it than just being taught it. And that 
was all lost in, in the modern system where we segregated the grades, never mind segregating the races, but when we, we basically said that we're going to put up a wall between the second and third grader. And I, I, teachers get pissed at me when I say this, but the reality is if, if you dropped out of school with straight A's in the fourth grade, but became a mature adult, you should be qualified to teach first through fourth grade because yeah. you've got straight A's in it and you shouldn't need a four year college education to teach a kid how to memorize their times tables and, and, and to, to insult people with the idea that you do and you have to formalize things to this degree just seems preposterous to me. I absolutely agree. Yeah, totally. So what do you think self ed, self-directed or home-based education does as far as affecting children and their families? Like how does that maybe improve the relationship or what have you? Well, I, I think that. Self-directed learning really brings a sense of responsibility, right? You're responsible for yourself when you're directing your own education. Like you, you have to do this on your own to a, a good degree. And of course, um, it's good to ask for help, right? And it's good to have help. And I think that's where, um, the parents come into play. Well, you know, some, a lot of the time, I hope, maybe not a lot of the time, but, um, parents will help their kids with their homework, at least early on. Um, has been my experience and what I see. Um, so it, it's helpful there and it's nice to be able to work with your kids and have, spend that kind of time with them. But, uh, you don't get that as much when your child's in school, right? But when your kid's at home learning on their own and, uh, you're the adult that they come to, to ask, right? If they need help on something, they're going to come to you because you're the only one there. So I think that it, it it's going to have a lot more bonding. And that's what I've experienced, um, with my with my parents is my mom works most of the time but my dad's kind of retired he he actually ran the school that i was in and uh he he's slowly getting out he's working part-time now but now it's summer so but him and i i could probably spend out of everybody in my life i probably spend um like 40 percent of my time with him because we're working on the farm together so we've definitely gotten closer we talk a lot more than we used to i think um so i would say that it's it really improves that family bond and I'm and I'm here all the time, right? I'm not as stressed out, so I'm not. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't get as uh, I guess pissy as I yeah. used to. I think, and uh, and now that I'm I'm here at home, I, I get to spend a lot of time here. So I I you know there's I have I guess I have a little bit more time to to do things here, um, and that's kind of nice. I think that's that's good for um, you know making sure I get my work done, uh, you know, and chores. Right. I think that improves. And I think that uh, just getting to spend time here and with my family has been an improvement. So I'd say self-directed education really would improve um, the family relationship. Yeah. And I'll tell you how else it it also removes stress and it's it's more effective for learning. And I really never hit on this until just listening to you right now talking, because I remember when my son was in school and he would come home with like especially math, because it seems like once every 10 years, they just change how math is done. Mm -hmm. Two plus two may still be four, but we're going to figure it out a different way. So he'd come home as he got into more advanced courses and he'd have math homework that was giving him trouble. And I would say, Oh, this is easy. Let me show you how to do it. And he'd say, I can't do it that way. It'll be wrong. <laughs> so I was unable to actually, so then I'd get stressed out because I'm, I'm pissed now. I'm like, don't tell me this is wrong. This is what I learned and this is the answer. And he's like, I know it's the answer, but it's, it, 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 I can't do it that way. I have to do it the way they, so he'd start trying to tell me how they do it. 
Now, I'm in my 30s. I don't have time for new shit like this, right? I Listen, this is a math problem. You solve it so you have the right answer, so you can do something with the information. And And you can take that to any type of way that children are taught to solve a problem, math just being a metaphor then. And what happens when two people get together, where it's a parent and a child, whether it's two friends, whether it's two partners, and they say, okay, this is the problem, or this is the thing we have to skin, or this is what we have to figure out, then it's a collaborative effort, and then the only effort is about how do we get it done, not This is how you get it done, which I think is what school has done, is created a, a single path answer for all questions, for all problems. And therefore, anytime you seek help from somebody that's not in that particular phase of indoctrination, in other words, if you've been out of that system for 10 years, they've probably changed it. So now that collaboration can't really happen anymore. And I, I think they do it intentionally to disempower parents. They say they want parents involved, but I feel like what the schools really want is they want parents to enforce the will of the school, not to actually get actively involved in the education. Right. I, I think that you can see a lot of examples with that. Like you brought up, uh, I don't know how long ago that was, but it was a while, but kids uh, or the parents weren't allowed to take their kids home from school. Yeah. Like that was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> kids in the neighborhood that. that could walk two blocks were told the kids had to take the bus. It's ridiculous. And they were threatened with being arrested for trespassing to show up and take their kids home. And I was thinking, oh, you are lucky that's not me. Because I would have, or there would have been 400 parents standing there going, okay, arrest me. If it was, it was my, my kid's school. I would have, I would have went door to door. I would have paid people salary for a day. Just take the day off from work. We're all going. If you don't show up, you know, there's something wrong with you. And I, I mean, I would have gotten, beyond pissed off if that would affect my kids but parents that have come out of that system are just like oh they said we had to do it so there's only like two or three mm -hmm. people in that story that were smart you know intelligent enough to, to still process and go this is wrong and they'll arrest three people they're not going to arrest 300 but they'll arrest three you know that yeah absolutely and there are a lot of examples and it's not tinfoil hat conspiracies right this there are a lot of things happening that makes The only thing that I can think explains it is that there is there are people out there who are against personalizing education and and, and they want to centralize it in the school system and they want to have it um, kind of this factory line thing get kids in get kids out like that's really what they're looking for and there's like uh, with the charter school that I went to like they're constantly like the school district and the state is are constantly putting things on that school to get it to shut down especially the yep. school district they're actively trying to shut down that school because that they're, they're like like why else would they do that other than they don't like to see kids succeeding because that's a school that really has a, a you know way better test scores than the rest of the district right and then and then you see people like they want to discourage people from dropping out right and and learning on their own and there are a few other things that make you, you think well Somebody is really out here trying to stop real education from happening, and it's bizarre. Because like, why else would you shut down these things like charter schools that are performing extremely well? Why else would you be trying to keep uh, parents from picking up their kids unless you want those kids to stay a part of that system and you want to create um, some sort of culture that obeys what they're told? Like I, I maybe I'm getting a little bit tinfoil no, high you're here, not. but, but you're I, not. You're, that's you're the only explanation I see. 
you're dancing right around the issue. You hit it with a single word, centralization. The people that want government in control want centralization of everything, centralization of food, centralization of water, centralization of energy, when all of the innovative solutions are decentralized. So if you want centralization of medicine, you, I mean, you want centralization of everything, it only stands to reason you would also want centralization of education. You can't centralize and have competition. I mean, it, it's really that logically simple. If you are to have a centralized system, there can't be a competitor to it. Even a pseudo-competitor that's within it that proves that the central solution is inadequate. So charter schools are really not outside the system. They're kind of in the, the edge of the system, and they shine a light on how horribly bad the current solution is. So instead of embracing that and saying, we should move the centralization toward this type of thing, they realize they can't do that because the first thing they would be telling individual schools is, well, you run your own show. And then if you really wanted to improve schools, and I think self-directed learning is better, but if you really want to improve schools, the next thing you do is turn to parents and say, you pick the school your kid goes to. You choose. And that alone would do wonders. Freeing up the individual schools, they don't want that because you, you've immediately moved toward decentralization. And then the path is so obvious where that ends up. It ends up in a completely decentralized system. And it would happen within a decade or less. So all of this has been to fight to retain the central authority. And it's not, if they could do it and make it a little better, they would. They, I mean, to be fair, they try. But anything that lets any one group excel just draws the, 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 the tarp off of the, the whole hidden mess, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, it's, and it's extremely disappointing because competition is how things get better. And it's, it's just disappointing to see. I mean, it's, it's government, right? That's, that's the way it works. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm not surprised by that, but it is disappointing to see and, and to see so many people get caught up in it. But what I've found is if you, you point out some of these things like, you know, there are laws against rural schools, um, expanding. There are things like that. And, and you look at some of these, um, and you point out some of the issues with the school system in general and you say, this is why I'm out. You know, that most people I found will understand that. Um, but, um, they still vote for the politicians that put them in, right? That to yep. put those laws in, <laughs> in place, right? So there's, it's disappointing to see people fall into the, the trap that the government has really set and the, the people run that have set. Well, I think that people feel like they, they're already trapped. Like, you don't understand, kid. We're all in this together. This is the way it is, and this is what you've got to do to succeed in the system because the system ain't going to change for you. I, I, so I think that people really realize, in general, I think people really realize how screwed up everything is, but they feel like they can't really change it, so you have to adapt to maximize the opportunity within a screwed up system. And they feel like they're protecting people when they say everybody should go to college and things like that. But, I mean, you know, back to the relationships, I would think that the social construct alone has to be better to allow children to learn outside of a building because I imagine if you have other people around you right now that you don't like, you just go somewhere else, right? You just leave. Like if somebody's a dick to you, you just go like, well, I'm not going to associate with you anymore. Uh, where in a school, if that if, you, if you're dealing with that problem, then you have no solution. You have no remedy. You're told, oh, deal with it, make friends with them, whatever kind of stupid nonsense. You'd never tell an adult that, right? We say we're teaching you kids the real world. 
Well, in the real world, if someone's a dick to me, I'm not expected to continue to associate with them or be where they are. I have freedom to remove myself, or if it's a place where I shouldn't be treated that way, to have them removed. Where in a school, it's just like, oh, screw it. You deal with it for, you know, 12 years, 13 years. Right. And, you, and I, you know, going to a small school, having the same friend group for you know, six years, right? I definitely, I definitely have had people where I'm like, I, I wish I didn't have to talk to you every day, but since we're in this situation and I don't really want to get in trouble, I'm not going to say anything. So I keep to myself, but now I just, I, I don't have to talk to them. So I, it's nice. It's really nice to be able to have that freedom of association that you, you don't get when you're stuck with the same people for years. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, that's, that's exactly right. Well, I mean, even if your school had some agriculture courses, right, saying, well, how, how come my yak's not doing the right thing? You know, it's, it's, it's not going into heat when it's supposed to or whatever. It seems sick or it's getting bloated. There's no real answers there. But if you can go find another farmer and just talk to them, so by being able to expand the social construct to people other than within the contained space, you also have a lot of other opportunities to learn and to expand. Right, yeah, the networking factor is is huge right instead of having this this solid you know network that doesn't change unless a new kid comes in or you get a new teacher um the network of school doesn't really change but then when you get start getting out of there and you start actually researching um this the information that you need on your own you find the people talking about it and then you talk to the people and talking about it right because yeah you, you have the most of these people that at least that I listen to um, uh, on podcasts, like they're pretty accessible. Like I can, if I want to get a question from Jack Spearco, I email him and, and put the. I can't remember what the the uh, stuff I'm supposed to write in. It's I really never. Yeah. See, I can reach out to you, right? Yeah. And, I, and then I can get real great information, and I don't have to spend seven hours in the classroom to do that. Well, and you could join a group on Facebook of people that do nothing but yaks. I'm sure there's a yak group, right? There is. And you could put that question out there to people that they live and breathe that every day or, uh, you know, people on our Regen Ag group, when they have a question about ducks, they always tag me because they know, like, I'm running 150 ducks on three acres and have been doing it for three years. There's almost nothing a duck can do that I haven't seen before or a problem I haven't seen. So we have this group think capability. I think that, like... I am more forgiving, as shitty as it was, of the 1970s and 80s school system that I was in because there wasn't an Internet. Not as we think. We were actually playing around on the Internet back then on chat boards. But nothing like we're, we, we can think of today. There wasn't a Google. There wasn't a Wikipedia. There wasn't social networks. None of that stuff existed. And it's as if the education system has just seen that as all like static and, and, and noise and annoyance. Instead of really realizing, like, this actually replaces some of what you do, but I guess no one really wants to be told that. <laughs> yeah, sure, right? Yeah, nobody wants to be told that they're being replaced. It's the horse and buggy and whip producers um, fighting yeah. against the automobile industry, right? It's gilding. It's exactly what it is. It's, 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 mm -hmm. it's, it's unionized thinking. We have to be defensive of our employment and of our control. And it's, 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 it's I, I, I personally think, I don't know how you feel, I personally think, like, it's already over, they're just holding on. And, and that people like you are going to become more and more than normal. And because they're, the market has provided so many solutions outside of the existing solution now that there's so much momentum that now you can't stop it. And within a decade, you're going to see schools closing their doors 
because they're not going to have the students to, to warrant keeping them open. Instead of building a new school every couple of years, these towns are going to be closing them down and selling them off to pay teachers in you know, a retirement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really hope we see that. I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not hopeful for a decade, but I definitely think in the next few generations, um, you're going to see more and more people uh, looking for alternatives. And there are alternatives other than self-directed education and homeschooling, right? They're like, uh, a great one is Praxis. And it's a, it's like some program where they, they teach you about, um, what the kind of field you want to get into. And then they try to find a startup company to put you in. Hmm. Um, and it's a really interesting program. I encourage you to look, look into it but there are alternatives like that popping up and uh that's very attractive right compared to school um like going to a nine-month program like praxis is much more interesting um to to me at least and the other kids i've talked to who know about it than going to a a four-year university and and now you need a master's degree and i think that's uh, like six years so it's it's a long time to to try and get that job and it's a lot of money and uh I mean, if they, if the Bernie Sanders gets his, uh, free education sort of thing, maybe it'll, it'll slow down the collapse of college, but, uh, I don't think so. I think well, it'll, it will do is devalue degrees. It'll absolutely devalue degrees. I think, like, the, the initial push is to get two year community college done for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at what it actually costs to do two years of community college, it's like, if you want to go, you can you can figure out how to pay for two years of freaking community college. I'm sorry, but if you do that, that becomes the new high school, right? That becomes right. the new high school diploma, and it and then a bachelor's becomes the new associate's degree, <laughs> and a master's becomes the new bachelor's. As far as how it would be valued in the marketplace, because so many people have it. I long ago was speaking to a guy when we when I used to be in regular business with quotes around it and. Uh, we were involved in like the technology business council and all these different things within the different chambers of commerce in uh, like the high tech area of North Dallas, Plano and Richardson and stuff like that. And I'm talking to this guy and he's a CEO of a company that does uh, basically customer service for other companies. And he's like, we're looking for CSRs, which is a customer service rep for those who may not know the acronym. And I said, really? And I'm like, well, what do you, because I had a recruiting company. Well, what do you need? He's like, you know, good communication skills, you know, typing at at least 45 words per minute, uh, you know, employment history, and we want people with a bachelor's degree. I'm like, you want people with a bachelor's degree to answer the phone and tell someone how the computer <laughs> works or tell them how to return a package? What, what the hell do you need that for? He goes, there's so many people with degrees looking for jobs right now. There's no reason not to add that to the requirements. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, and this is what we've been marketing to children to take out fifty, sixty, a hundred thousand dollars in loans to acquire the concept that it's now such a commodity that there's no reason to not ask for it because so many people have it. That's worth fifty thousand dollars in four years of your life. You've got to be kidding me. And this man looked at me with a straight face. He was dead sincere. He wasn't being a jerk about it. He was making an honest statement. And the thing he followed it up with is I figure if a person can complete a four year degree that I can count on them to get things done. <laughs> and I kinda wanted to pull my gun and blow my brains out. I really did. Just yeah. That's crazy. And, yeah. I, I that's really disappointing to see. And uh, I think that's uh, a, the, I, probably the attitude of a lot of employers. Yeah. Do you remember the movie Office Space? Yes. Do you ever see that? So do you remember when Milton's down in the basement and they turn the light off on him? And he says, <laughs> that's that's the last straw, right? 
That was for me. That was the last straw for me. That's when I was done. I was a hundred percent done with, I was already not a fan, but I was like, okay, that's it. I, I can't, I can't continence this no more. I can never recommend that a child go to college unless they have a plan, a reason and a career path in mind. This concept of everybody just goes and your first two years don't matter. Take general courses. Like I, I can't recommend that a child take that path any longer. Yeah, absolutely not. It's it's uh, it's definitely this is pretty ridiculous, right? To suggest that that this is what you should do, you know, get sixty thousand dollars in debt and uh, see if you can find a job since uh, everybody else that you're competing with has the same degree. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I always get crap from people when I have these conversations, like you know, I you know they'll say I went to school and I'm doing great and all, and I'm like saying like college. It's not evil in of itself, right? A, a shovel's not evil. I can I can put a garden in with a shovel or I can bash somebody over the head with it. A gun's not evil. I can feed my family, defend my home, or I can murder somebody with it, right? So it's the application. So college itself is not evil. And if you have a career path in mind that pays well, that warrants a degree, that really requires a degree, then I can see pursuing that degree. But when you don't have any of those things, then basically you're just following this mythology of, Will college graduates make more money? Well, stupid people don't usually, well, I should say, stupid people didn't used <laughs> to get into college, right? So you just knew that the people that had a degree would have done better no matter what because they were more educated. Often they had greater support from family. They had more opportunity, things like that. And it falsely creates this narrative that degree equals greater pay. Because I know people with degrees right now attending bar. Mm-hmm. And if you say, why are you attending bar? What they respond with is an entry level job that I can find has crap benefits and I'll make 30 grand a year. But in this bar as a bartender, I'm making 65. I still have crap benefits, but I have 30,000 more dollars a year. Mm-hmm. And by the way, since a lot of it comes in tips, eh, I'm not really paying tax on all of it. So like, did you need to go to college to do that? Nope. And then I'll tell you the other reason I found young guys doing this and, and gals too with degrees. So they go to a nice bar. Who comes in? All types of business people come in to do entertaining, and they get regular clients, and they make connections, and they eventually find a better job by having a bartending job than because they had the degree. So the same guy that would get their resume, you know, if anybody still uses resumes anymore and and hit the delete button because we don't fax them anymore, um, would have no interest in hiring them because of what they show on paper. But when they, you know, they go in and they, they talk to them every day and they end up relying on them as a bartender when they're bringing, you know, their clients in that they're taking care of all the time and eventually learn about them and they're looking for a better job. Then they say, Hey, maybe we have something you should come in. And so I'm starting to see bartending and, and positions in the service industry like that that cater to the higher end clientele is a better pathway to a career than a college degree. And people will call me crazy for that, but. You know, you judge something by its results. Yeah, exactly. And I think the the big thing is the the power of networking, right? That's a huge thing. And that's what I've found is uh, if you can network, you can be pretty successful, right? Being in touch with the right kind of people and, uh, and you know, being able to um, find people that you need help from and being able to provide help to them, too. Right, is very valuable. So when you see somebody like that, you know, they're networking. They're getting to know these people directly. Like when school, you don't get to do that because you're, all you do is listening to a professor who may have had some business experience, but he's not running a business anymore. 
Um, instead, at the bar, you get to talk to the people who are actually doing something and yeah. are actually um, running the business and doing the job that you want to get into. So it's it's definitely more valuable. And I don't want to say it's only bars, but it's that type of thing, getting out sure. socially. And, and Because here's the deal, like, if I like you, and I think you're decent at your job, and I think and I find out you need a job. I will reach out to my network and try to find you a job. If I don't really know you, but I know you're good at your job and you want a job, I don't really have a lot of motivation to utilize my network on your behalf, unless someone happens to like. If let's say you were a really great technical recruiter, and then one of my old contacts from that industry contacted me and said, "Hey, uh, I'm looking for a technical recruiter." I'd say, "I just." Heard of this guy. He's pretty good. You should look him up. But I'm not going to just know that you need that and reach out to my contacts still in that industry to get you a job if I don't know you. But if I like you, I'll do whatever I can to help you. And that's just how human beings work. And your problem with school is most of your teachers have never held a job other than teaching, so they have no contacts. Right. They just don't. It's not a negative as far as toward their personality. They just don't. I don't I don't have any contacts other than a few people from the show, let's say, in the aerospace industry because I didn't work in that industry. So I don't have them. Right. So I, I can't do that. And then everybody else around you is what? A student. Well, they're students. They're not working either. They unless they're, you know, nepotism or something. They don't have anything either. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the big examples other than. Well, at least in my life has been podcasting, right? Being able to uh, uh, <clears throat> have people on your show and get to talk to them like what we're doing here now, like get, connecting with people and uh, and getting to have a conversation with them and then, you know, getting to know them a little bit better. We know it, I know what you're doing because I listen to your show. You know what I'm doing now because I've talked to you about it here. Um, you get to have these people in your network and you and you um, have the ability to reach out to them from time to time, depending on on how close you are, but right. That's, that's the way I found. And that's actually how I got some of one of my business partners, the guy who owns uh, almost half of my yak herd here. I met him because I interviewed him and he, and I, he learned, Oh, you have yaks. I want to get into yaks, but oh, I don't have the go. space. Yeah. Right. So that's, there's just examples, right? Where you can, if you go out and you meet people, if you find a way to, to expand your network, I think that you'll find a lot of success. Yeah, I have a friend named David. He was over here uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about how I get questions all the time, like, what should I do to invest my $10,000? And I'm always like, that's that's not the kind of money that you invest. If that's all you have to invest, you need to hold on to it or do something with it. And, that's, and David's like, yeah, do something with it. Like, figure out how to do – like, don't invest it. You know, flip a car, uh, you know, do something with the money from an entrepreneurial standpoint – don't, you know, cause what are you going to do? Give somebody 10 grand to risk it for a 10% return to make a thousand bucks over a year with a, with a risk that you'll lose a thousand bucks. If you can't use $10,000 to make a thousand dollar profit, you need to work on that, not where do I invest my money? And that starts with getting out, meeting people and learning. And I think the other thing is seeing opportunities. Like when I, when I look at the world, all I think is, Oh, Jesus. There's an opportunity. There's an opportunity. There's an opportunity. And as a serial entrepreneur, I always have to say, but you can't do all of that shit because you won't <laughs> do well with what's there. But all I can think is all these people that are saying, I need a shot. I need an opportunity. I need a chance. Stop looking at the screen and look at the world, even if it's through the screen, and see the opportunities and go grab onto it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, at 17, I've got a lot of business ideas and the, not all of them are going to be super, um, 
successful, right? That's why I'm, I'm going with Yaks. I'm going to make a little bit money compared to the other ones I have. But they're decent side hustles, yeah. right? And so I, like, I used to have a, a couple buddies that would be like, oh, man, I'm, I'm going to start a business, but I don't know what to do. I'm like, well, do this. And they're like, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. I'm like, well, okay, do this, do that. And like, look at all these things. They're like, I can't ever come up with business ideas. Like, well, it's because you're not looking. Yeah. But that's the thing. There are a lot of opportunities to make money. It just takes quite a bit of effort. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story and then I want to talk about your podcast, right? And actually, I got one question for you before we do that, but sure. just not seeing opportunities. Back when I was 15 years old, I knew that at the end of that summer, I was going to turn 60 and get my license. I wanted a car. And, uh, I really didn't have a job paying very much money. Back then, minimum wage was like three fifteen an hour or something like that. I think I was making four bucks at the grocery store, and I only had so many hours that they would give me. And uh, I wanted to buy a decent car, and I had to be able to buy a car. I had to have enough money to put gas in it for six months, and I had to have enough money to pay for the insurance for six months for my dad to let me buy a car. And when you're 16, if you're going to buy a car, you have to have you know a parent to be able to do that. So I need to have that much money by the end of the summer and I'm walking around up on this mountain that we used to hunt and fish and, and, and forage on, and I find this old mine shack and, and abandoned since the 30s. And there's all these old electric motors in there. I mean, there's thousands of these like electric fan motors they used to use to punt, to push air out of the mines. The problem is there's no way to get anything up there of any size. Like I would basically ride my motorcycle to almost that point, and then I would hike up the hill, and then I'd have to manually carry stuff down. So you're not going to carry a whole bunch of these giant motors on a motorcycle so i go up there with tin snips in a backpack and I cut the copper on one side start yanking copper out copper is like 75 mm. cents a pound at the time so i haul down enough copper to to do all that shit for a year instead of six months in in three months time just whenever i had time i'd go up there and maybe i'd take my rifle and do some shooting or something like that or a rod and go fishing but i'd spend a couple hours yanking this copper out so I go back to school and I've got my car, right? Which is, you know, that's, it's not, this is not the day when dads bought kids brand new cars and shit or handed down four year old cars. Like you drove a 10 year old car if you were lucky and you had to figure out how to buy it. So mm-hmm. I have my car and all my buddies are like, well, how'd you get a car? So I tell them up on this hill where this stuff is. And I'm like, there's, there's hundreds of them still up there. All you got to do is go pull that shit out and get a car. None of these guys ever did it. So I had told dozens of people that that stuff's just laying there. In 2001, I guess it was, or 2002, well, we were, I took a job in Pennsylvania. I took my wife and son up that mountain and I climbed up into that place and everything looked like the day I left it, other than there was more trees growing around it. There was a big pile of empty frames that I had piled there and not a single other one of them had been touched. Now, I'm not saying that's a sustainable business. Eventually you're going to run out of it, but this was a place where kids were poor. People fought over a job stocking, you know, shelves or filling bags. And it was just money sitting there. And in 20 plus years, no one did a damn thing. And that's what I mean by like, there's an opportunity and people won't take it. Yeah, absolutely. Just, just won't take it. So I have a question before we talk about your podcast. You probably didn't expect. I do remember our last interview. Have you yet successfully milked a yak? <laughs> we just actually uh we we haven't uh, which is disappointing i'm uh i keep getting faced with the challenges i keep trying uh to do something i realize okay i don't know how to do that better stop do a little bit of research figure out how to do it and then do it so i'm taking all these slow steps and i think there needs to be uh more planning on my part 
because so we I just tried to pull a calf uh, this week and uh, we we held her for a night, but she just kept getting out and she was uh, banging against the wall. So I don't know what I was doing wrong. Something I got to look into better better facilities or something. Maybe it was too old the calf. And so I was going to try and milk her her mother, but the mother sure. was also too uh, too upset about the calf being lost. That's something about yaks. Yeah, very maternal. Um, Maybe that's why there's no yak milk in the dairy. That's, right? It might be why. So there are people who do it outside of the United States, which nobody doing here. But so I have not done it yet. I keep uh, I keep getting thinking that I get close, and then I'm, I'm not. So I have not done it yet, but I'm. I'm Maybe you're gonna have to take a, three a, years a field trip to the Kazakhstan mountains or something. I don't <laughs> wherever they do this or the, uh, the 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 highlands of Austria. I don't know where people do this, but. You might have to go there. So let's talk about your podcast a little bit. Tell people about your your website, your podcast, and, and the kind of subjects you talk about. Sure, I run the Anarcho Yakitalism podcast. It's a play on anarcho capitalism. I'm sure some of your audience is familiar with that that term, but it's uh, it's basically libertarian anarchism, which I I'm sure you kind of identify as. Yeah. All right. So I, that's kind of what I don't really talk about politics very much. But um, I started a podcast when I was, I think I was 15, and with the help of Michael W. Dean of the Freedom Fiends, he kind of was my mentor there. And so he got me started way back when, and I started out talking about philosophy, deep philosophy, like uh, epistemology and metaphysics, uh, some big 15-cent term there. But um started talking about that, and then as I, I got into more of the entrepreneur Ship thing. Start talking more about that. I talk a little bit about education. Um, I've had, and I just range topics um, pretty much everywhere. Whatever I'm kind of into, I I try to get somebody to talk about um, on the show. And unfortunately, I I neglected farming because uh, I'm a little bit scared to try and talk about farming on my own because I've only been I've been doing it two years and I don't know anything. Right. A lot of people say, Nick, why don't you talk about these, this breed of hogs that you're raising, the American guinea hogs? I'm like, well, I, I should, but I don't know exactly how to raise them. I'm still figuring it out. So I don't really talk about that very often, but most of the stuff I hit, I think, is, um, related to ethical philosophy. So I like talking about stoicism and, uh, like certain communication strategies and, and just basically how to live a better life is what I'm, I'm trying to look at and from a philosophical angle most of the time. Very cool. That's awesome. On the farming stuff, the way you handle that, the way you kind of integrate that without like having to be afraid is instead of saying, this is how you raise pigs, say, this is what I'm doing and this is what's happening. And that, mm-hmm. that way you can share what's going on in your life. That's something I've done with this show on everything. Like, uh, people meet me and they're like, this is kind of weird because I feel like I know everything about your life and you know nothing about me. Mm-hmm. But I think that like in building a, building a brand and podcasting, that's what makes us different than terrestrial radio. Like, we're who we really are because we're not worried some sponsor is going to pull the plug on us or a station's going to not want us anymore. Because even if you're buying airtime, there's stations that will say, yeah, you can't do that here. You're out. And you, somebody lose a, the guys that are doing syndication can lose a bank of stations. And if you are a, an actual, you know, DJ, if you want to call it that, then you have a job and they can just fire you where we don't really care. Like, I don't want to piss off all my listeners at one time. That would be bad. But if I get an email from somebody someday and you hear the butt hurt in the typing, you know, like, you are such a jerk. I can't believe you said that. I am so offended. Like, <laughs> well, it took you 1,800 episodes to get offended. <laughs> I'm sorry you weren't paying attention earlier. <laughs> That's that you're, like, genuine. So, like, people 
trust you, and that creates tremendous opportunities with social capital. And the fact, I mean, if I was doing this when I was 17, like you are, holy crap, you know, I mean, I, I just can't imagine where I would be today with it. So I think it's great for you. The, the, and then the other thing is, you have the opportunity, like, you couldn't do this when I was 17. There was no, you couldn't conceive of doing this. Like, we were sitting there with our Commodore 64s, trying to get the girl to take her clothes off and strip poker, and she was made out of, like, you know, the worst graphics in the world. Right, that that was computers in 1984, and what we can do today is basically compete with the largest radio stations on the planet, and that's pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's one of the things I really like about podcasting is the ability to to talk about um, other things. And yeah, like we we're saying, I, I so I try to do that with the, some of the more entrepreneurship side of things, and I should I should do that with the podcast. Talk about what's going on. Because that would be interesting. I'm, I'm surprised I haven't thought about that. So I'll, I'll do that. Be fearless, that. man. Be fearless yeah. because that's that's how you get somewhere, you know. And I, I, like, just tell me, like, how many episodes have you done? What's your frequency? Um, I've done 91, and I uh, used to be doing once a week, but uh, for like the last year, I was once a week. But recently, things have just been picking up, and my time management needs work. So I'm. I'm still figuring out how to put out regular shows and yeah. keep up with the the work on the. You're farm. coming up on a, a milestone, man. 100 episodes. That's a that's yeah. a big milestone for most podcasts. Don't make it 100 episodes. They just don't. Most don't make it 50. So yeah, that's I think a, the the average lifespan of a of a podcast is like seven episodes. Yeah. <laughs> so I think once you get past 50, you're going to make it as long as you want to. That that's kind of the. And there's guys that are like blow it up and just decide to do something else. Like I don't know if you know who Gary Vaynerchuk is. Mm-hmm. But he did Wine Library TV for like three or four years, and it was hugely successful. And he's like, I'm tagging out. I'm done. And there were a lot of people like, really? Because, <laughs> you know, like I felt like I feel like if I ever did that, I'd have people at my house. Like, oh, that'd be what crazy. What are you doing, dude? You know, uh, and he did it like all in this one big like within a like it was like a month where he said he was going to do it. You know, like this is going to be the last episode. And people were like, no. And then, boom, I'm done. And he's off running his social media company. He just didn't do it anymore. Um, so, I, you know, that guy could have done Wine Library TV till now and still been going. So you're also in, in control. But I think once you get kind of out of that 50-episode 50 50 realm, you've got the formula down and you can make it work. So just keep driving at it, dude. Yeah, absolutely. Because you may that. find in the long run you make a hell of a lot more money with it than you do with Yaks. And then <laughs> yeah. have two sources of income, which is better than one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm hoping someday I'll be able to to monetize it. This is what I'll, I'm going to retire on podcasting and radio. Hopefully, podcasting and radio. Yeah, and there's 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 a lot of opportunity in radio that didn't exist in the '80s as well because you can do things like buy time on different networks and all. But I don't have time to do that. That's I oh, have yeah, to produce crazy. a show that uh, that the FCC would not approve of. <laughs> so I'd have to produce a whole new show. To do it on radio to change the format, but uh, I have kicked it around, and I think you know at your age it might be something to consider. So, man, thanks for being with us again. Tell people your website. Uh, my website is uh, an-yak.com. That's an-yak.com. But if you look up Nick Hazelton, uh, you'll find it pretty quick. And then hazeltonfarm.com is also uh, the website for the farm. Cool. So I'll put both of those in the show notes, and I appreciate you being with us today, Nick. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Jack. All right, man, we're done. Cool. That I'm was gonna, really fun. I'm going to roll, and uh, we'll uh, have this up in probably about 30, 40 minutes. 
Cool. I'll post it. Thank you very much. All right, man. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. All right, that was a great interview with a great young man, and um, I want to remind you guys now as we're wrapping up, you can support this show by joining the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. You can just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. When you do that, you'll see the list of all the companies you get discounts from and all of the other great benefits you get. The MSB is really worth 10 times what I sell it for, easily, easily. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, active due to your prior service, you can get a discount on an already great product. Just email me at jack at com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I'll get you that discount code. Do that before, not after you join. And everybody else, really think about joining. I mean, try it out for five bucks. That's what I would say. It's five bucks on an automatic renewal on PayPal. If you decide you don't like it, just cancel it in PayPal. I mean, that, that, that's that simple. Uh, but 50 bucks a year, you get a discount right there from, from 60 to 50 bucks, 10 bucks off. And there's two benefits alone in the MSB, the uh, Safe Castle membership and the uh, discount membership first year uh, to Western Botanicals that are worth twice the cost of the membership as it is at full price. So consider joining if you love this show and you want to support the work we do. The other way you can support this work we do is to shop our Amazon store. The best way to do that the easiest way to do that, just go to tspaz.com. tspaz.com, when you get there, you'll see a, a couple links. One, just click on it, you go to Amazon and buy whatever you want, forget about it, everything else. The next one will take you to our item of the day. Every day we feature, feature a cool item of the day. And the other one will take you to a page that gives you all of the reviews I've ever done of every product on Amazon, all the tspaz products. Any way that you do that, if you go to Amazon after that, you will help support our show. So you could just go to T-Spaz, click that first link, and buy tiddlywinks and, 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 and Twinkies, and we would get credit for your business. Though I suggest you don't buy Twinkies because there's, there's so much sugar in those damn things. On that, my item of the day today is my favorite brand of Stevia extract. And I'll be honest with you, every liquid Stevia I've ever tried is pretty much the same. It really is. So it's not really that this brand is my favorite to use. It's my favorite to buy on Amazon. Here's why. Great price, great product. It's on Prime. You get quick shipping. And uh, for a little extra, if you wanted your order shipped faster, you could even have it uh, the next day instead of free two-day shipping if you're a Prime member. So it's just a great product. It's called Sweet Leaf Sweet Drops Sweetener. It's made with nothing but stevia. That's all it really is. And I have it featured today on T-Spaz for the 4-ounce bottle, which I definitely recommend because it's a better deal than the 2-ounce bottle, but they do have a smaller size if you just want to try it. And they also have a twin pack of 4-ounce bottles. And uh, with that, you get, a, you get a really great deal on it. Um, I, I don't want to read the whole review to you today, but I do want to kind of give you like an impetus for why you should be using stevia as a sweetener, if not some other form of non-actual sugar sweetener. Because um, being serious, excess sugar consumption is the number one cause of lifestyle disease in the modern world. And this site, this show is a survival podcast. And man, this is a survival topic. Getting off sugar can save your life. Here's a simple low-end breakdown. Say you drink four cups of coffee or a tea a day with one teaspoon of sugar per cup and four soft drinks or similar with uh, 12 ounces each. And we'll go low and say those have two teaspoons of sugar because you're making them yourself in some way. 
Well, that's 12 teaspoons of sugar a day, 84 teaspoons a week. That's almost 310 carbohydrates a week in pure sugar form. That jacks up your insulin resistance. From a purely caloric standpoint, that's 1,344 calories, meaning if you're on a 1,500 to 2,000 calorie a day uh, level of requirement of calories, that's almost an extra day of eating per week just by having those, those, those drinks every day. And that's 52 times a year. So that's almost 52 days of extra eating a year. And if, it, if this is sugar is your only, that's only if sugar is your only vice, if you consume it in drinks. I mean, if you're getting sugar from other sources, think about how it adds up. And here we're talking, you know, self-sweetened drinks. What happens if we, say, go to just four cans of Coke or other similar soda a day? We, we toss out the tea. One Coke has 39 carbs times four is 156 times seven is 1,092 grams of carbs a week. And, and that's like just, again, spiking insulin. Let's say we cut it down to just two Cokes a day. They're at 546 carbs a week. Can you even begin to know what that does to the insulin resistance in your body? Calorically, two Cokes a day is almost 2,000 calories a week. If we go back to, let's say, four a day, that's 8,000 calories a week. That's up to two full days of, uh, actually, that adds up to, to four full days of eating every week with no nutrition at all. And if you're thinking, well, I, I don't do that, I don't, I don't drink that much soda or other sugary stuff, what about your kids? Kids seem to be able to eat this crap, and they can, but they, if they do it, by the time they get to a big, to adults, they're basically addicted to sugar. Uh, Coke is still addictive, even though they took the cocaine out of it, and other sugars like that. And if eventually, even the young person's amazing, uh, ability to, to not develop insulin resistance always goes away in the end. And it's just something to think about. So, you know, I really recommend whether you get it at the store or you use a different sweetener that you start figuring out how to make your own things and instead of sugar, use something else. I think stevia is, is kind of the best, um, really, because sugar in itself isn't evil, but if you read a label, it's in everything anymore. And all it is doing now is creating lifelong customers for the medical industry and the drug companies. I think part of being a survivalist is taking your health back, and this is one simple way to do that. So remember, you can always shop on T-Spaz, but whether you shop on T-Spaz or not, uh, consider doing things like drinking teas or coffee using stevia, or consider using it in and making some of your other uh, foods. You can use stevia in your other food as well, and making your own drinks, like my strawberry limeade, and there's a link today in the uh, review to where you can learn how to do that. My strawberry limeade, a gallon of it is 44 carbohydrates. A, a gallon is 44 carbohydrates from the from the strawberry and lime juice, and it's amazing. Everybody that's drank is like, wow, it's great. And uh, a can of Coke is 39 carbohydrates. Just kind of think about that. And trust me, the, the strawberry limeade, if you freeze that crap as a popsicle, your kids will go nuts over it. Um, if you want your kids to grow up and be healthy, you have to teach them to be healthy while you have the opportunity because it won't always be there. Um Lastly, the song of the day today is by uh, John P Prine, who I've never actually heard of before. Somebody sent me this morning this song, and I, and I, I had to play it for you. It's called The Great Compromise. And I'm not going to read the words to it to you, as I usually do, but it sounds like he's talking about a girl that's you know, screwed him over at the drive-in, and now she's hooking up with lots of guys, and uh, she's, she's not interested in him anymore. anymore. 
but at times he's, she's still in his, her, his head, and he knows she's not there anymore. It's not the same person, but he wishes she was the girl he remembers, and he wishes she was still with him, and he wishes he could still be with her, and she lives in his head. And I'll give you one line in the whole thing, or a stanza, basically, the chorus. I used to sleep at the foot of old glory and awake in the dawn's early light, but much to my surprise, when I opened my eyes, I was a victim of the Great Compromise. Now, a lot of you guys know of the Great Compromise, the Connecticut Compromise. We'll probably cover that in a history segment. Um, that's not what this is about, the Great Compromise of America. The, the woman in this song is America, and this was written during the Vietnam War. This is what pa, uh, Prine says about it. I had, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna pretty it up a little bit because uh, he uses a word I don't want to use in this context here. The idea I had in my mind was that America was this girl you used to take to the drive-in movies. And then when you went to get some popcorn, she turned around and jumped in a foreign sports car and and, uh, and got involved with the guy in that car, I'll just say. I really love America. I just don't know how to get there anymore, end quote. And this is a lot of times how I feel when I look at what my country has done and is continuing to do all around the world. And it's not that we don't do any good, but God, we do so much that we just shouldn't be doing. We, 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 we are really trying to control the world. Well, you remember, remember in the, like the, the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, all the spy shows and spy movies, there was always like some weird evil genius trying to take over the world. It feels to me like America is trying to take over the world. Not in, a, not in a conventional sense where we basically occupy every country, though we have troops in an awful lot of countries, but where we just basically want everybody to conform to what we believe they should do. And if you don't, then we're going to use either soft or hard power against you. But I believe in the dream that is America. I believe in the ideal that is America. I believe in liberty and freedom and justice for all. I believe in that. And I want it to be that way. I'm not going to ever say I want it to be that way again because I don't know that it ever really was, but it was a hell of a lot closer at one time. And at least we tried to be that. At least we wanted to be that. At least there were people that were striving to be that. And that, 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 that beautiful girl lives in my head and I want her back in my life is what he was saying. And I understand that. And I, I just wonder if it's ever, ever even going to be possible in our current situation. And I think what we need to realize as Americans, and I say that not as a, not as a state, but as a, as a true nation, as people that aspire to the ideals of America, that's what it's really all about. We may not be able to fix the government. We may not be able to fix this place with borders and, 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 and laws and, and, and power. But we can fix ourselves. The ideal is still there. Unlike a, a, a woman who can completely change because all human beings can decide to be something else if we want to be. An ideal is an ideal. Freedom and liberty. And... It's up to us to heal the damage in ourselves, but it's our choice, and we can either choose to do so or not to do so, and we can't wait for others if we really want to live up to the ideals that America is supposed to be. America has to be 
for us at this point, I feel, on some level, is a dream. A dream that we strive for. And we never use the excuse, well, we're better than other people. When I worked for Fluke Networks, we started having problems with the quality of our service and our product. I and the other sales managers basically went back to corporate and said, we're screwing up, guys. And, and corporate's response was, well, our only real competitor to the left is Agilent, and we're doing better than them. I like, I don't want my sales pitch to be, we don't suck as bad as Agilent, and I don't want my defense of the ideal of America to be, we don't suck as bad as China. If you don't like it, go to Somalia. If you don't like it, go to Yemen. I, I don't want that to be our defense of this nation, not this state. I still believe in the nation that is America. The state, state is the problem. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. A new girl who's almost a lady She had a way with all men in her life Every inch of her blossom and beauty She was born on Well, she lived in an aluminum house trailer And she worked in a jukebox saloon And she spent all the money that I give her Just to see the old man in the moon I used to sleep at the foot of old glory And awake in the dawn's early light But much to my surprise when I opened my eyes I was a victim of the great compromise Well, we'd go out on Saturday evenings To the driving on Route 41 And it was there That I first suspected That she was doing What she'd already done She said, Johnny Won't you get me some popcorn And she knew I had to walk pretty far And as soon as I passed through the moonlight She hopped into I used to sleep at foot of old glory And awake in the dawn's early light But much to my surprise when I opened my eyes I was a victim of a great compromise Well, you know Could have beat up that fella, but it was her that had hopped into his car. Many times I fought to protect her, but this time she was going too far. 
Now some folks, they call me a card Cause I left her at the driving that night But I'd rather have names thrown at me Than to fight for a thing that ain't right I used to sleep at the foot of old glory And awaken the dawn's early light But much to my surprise when I opened my eyes I was a victim of the great compromise Well, she writes all the fellas love letters Send greetings, come and see me real soon And they go and line up in the barroom Spend the night in that sick woman's room But sometimes I get awful lonesome And I wish she was my girl instead But she won't let me live with her And she makes me live in my head I used to sleep at the foot of old glory And awaken the dawn's early light But much to my surprise when I opened my eyes I was a victim of the 